This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. You know, the, the question that most patients are asking, you know, what is working today in the country? Because everywhere you turn, it's just one crisis after another. This is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're learning how to do good better. I'm Kent Annan, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. I'm joined by my colleagues Jamie Ayton and Laura Finch to explore how we can more effectively love our neighbors, from everyday acts of kindness to navigating the most complex humanitarian challenges facing the church and society today. And today we're thrilled because we're getting to talk with Jacqueline Charles, who is Haiti correspondent for the Miami Herald. And on a personal level, I've been involved in Haiti for about 15 years, and she's always the first one I go to when something happens in the news uh, so I can learn from her excellent journalism. So Jacqueline, we're so grateful that you're with us today. Thanks for having me. Um, there, it's hard. We're getting ready to talk to you. It's hard to know where to start because so much is happening in Haiti right now with uh, this recent kidnapping, assassination of the president in July, the earthquake with deportations. Uh, but we did want to start with kidnapping, and you've been writing a, a couple stories at least about this kidnapping. Can you give us a quick summary of what happened and where the situation is now? So, yes, yeah, so we are looking at a situation currently where you have a group of 17 missionaries with Christian aid ministries out of Ohio who were kidnapped um, in Haiti. So this would make the 10th day, and today is the 25th of October, that they are being held in captivity. The group includes 16 Americans, one Canadian, and five children, the youngest of whom is eight months old. Uh, the gang which goes by the name Katsa Mauzo, 400 Mauzo. Uh, they have demanded a ransom amount of 17 million US dollars, which is essentially $1 million per person. Uh, since that last request, we really have not heard if they have come down on that figure. What usually happens in these cases is a gang will throw out a number, they'll go high, and the person on the other line, relatives, employers, they will basically attempt to negotiate to try to get to some price that is affordable. But we did see a video that the gang leader, whose name basically translates in Creole to death doesn't know when it's coming, um, who basically, you know, threatened to put a bullet in the heads of the hostages if he doesn't receive um, the ransom amount. And help us understand the broader context in which this has been occurring, that this isn't the first kidnapping to happen in Haiti. Help us to understand some background of what's been happening there. Exactly. So, you know, a lot of the news media that are new to Haiti or haven't been to Haiti in the last 11 years, the last time being, you know, when there was a 7.0 earthquake that struck Port-au-Prince in 2010 and nearly destroyed the capital, uh, a lot of them are unaware, but kidnapping, unfortunately, has become a common and everyday problem in Haiti. The victims most often are Haitians themselves, whether we're talking about a school-aged child who was snatched off the street while going to school, 
or we had the tragic case of a young lady who was in her last year of high school and she was kidnapped and her poor parents could not afford the ransom amount and her body was basically found naked on a heap of trash, uh, you know, uh, and this was just recently. Basically, what we're seeing today is nobody is immune from, from kidnappings. I mean, I was writing about, you know, Haitian Americans, U.S. citizens who were visiting the country and who became victims last year. But this case is standing out because we're talking about um, Americans who are missionaries. They're part of the Mennonite community. They're down there essentially doing God's work. Uh, they live in the country. Um, although I understand in this group, they're fairly new to Haiti, but, you know, this community, this this NGO in particular, they've been involved in Haiti for years, providing, um, you know, education, healthcare. Uh, they've also been doing Bible teachings. In fact, the group was kidnapped when they were on their way back from visiting an orphanage that the charity supports. But you know what we have seen, you know, in parallel to this surge in kidnappings, is the rise of criminal armed gangs in Haiti. And they basically have been linked to the kidnappings. They're using it for uh, monetary benefits. Sometimes um, the kidnapping is a contract kidnapping, meaning it's um, somebody who wants to get back at a business rival or even within a relative. But but often what we're seeing is it's become a crime of opportunities. And we hear um, stories, various stories in terms of how they're carried out. So the ammo changes from time to time. Sometimes uh, the individuals who are doing the kidnapping address as police officers. Um, sometimes in the case of this particular gang, since May, the trend that we've been seeing is they're into group kidnappings, meaning that they will kidnap an entire busload of individuals, car loads or van loads. And what they would do is they would ransom the entire um, group as, as one for one price. So rather than ask for $200,000 for a person, they may ask that for 20 people who are on the bus or $2,000 or $20,000 for everybody that's on the bus, which is, it's much easier to raise $20,000 among, you know, 10 or 20 people as opposed to $200,000 by one. And the reason why they would do that is so that, um, to avoid detection. So for instance, you know, the president was assassinated on the 7th of July and between July and August, it seemed like there was really a lull, right? In kidnappings. But then we started to hear reports that after the earthquake, August 14th, which was five weeks later, you had doctors <laughs> who were being kidnapped, snatched off the streets of the capital while the southern edge of the country was in this deep humanitarian crisis, this emergency completely. There are towns, whole towns that have basically been devastated, destroyed because of the 7.2 magnitude quake. And yet, you know, gangs were kidnapping doctors. Uh, there's a local NGO in Haiti that's monitoring kidnappings. And according to the reported cases that they've been able to register, because it's a crime that often goes unregistered, uh, the number of kidnappings between July and September basically surged 300%. And then could you, thanks, Jacqueline. I mean, the context is kind of horrifying and you think about uh, what it means, you know, as for day-to-day -day people, as you said, most often for Haitians, and then it's in the news here in the U.S. because of these American and Canadian missionaries. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the, the context since the assassination of the president, how how has that contributed or not to uh, sort of avoid where gangs can have even more control? 
Well, I think we have to go a little bit back. I mean, you know, a lot of people, again, coming new to Haiti or, you know, the assassin, July 7th assassination of President Jovenel Moïse in the middle of the night in his private residence in his bedroom, you know, it was such a shocking event and, and woke a lot of people up to Haiti. But the reality is, is that Haiti has been a country that has just been spiraling downward, or as the Catholic Church said, it's quote unquote, descent into hell. Um, for the last couple of years, President Jovenel Moïse himself was a very controversial figure. He was a target of mass protests almost from the day that he took office. Uh, he came into office after an election that was the first round that was highly regarded as fraudulent. Um, this, when the election was rerun, you barely had 500,000 people, voters in a country of 11.5 million to actually vote uh, and vote him in. So I think the overall turnout was something like 18%, but he came into office behaving like a leader who had a 90% you know, mandate. And this created a series of friction that we started to notice in the country. We went through a period called Paylock where the country was entirely shut down. Nothing was moving, no schools, businesses, everything was completely shuttered, you know, for weeks and weeks. Uh, you also had the president who was pushing forward with a new constitution, despite the fact that all of the legal scholars, practically at least the respected ones in the country, were all saying that this was an illegal act based on the current constitution. But he basically was moving ahead with writing a new constitution. Uh, he was ruling by decree at the time of his death, meaning that he was one of only 11 elected officials in the entire country because parliament had been dismissed after Haiti's failure to hold timely elections. There was no lower chamber. All of their terms had expired. And the president himself um, dismissed some senators in the upper chamber, uh, saying that their terms expired. So you were basically left with just 10 members of the Senate, one third of the Senate, which is essentially 30 members, but you only had 10. So with that, you couldn't get a quorum and you really couldn't govern with any real checks and balances. Um, so he was the commander in, in, in chief. So when you put all of this context together and in the midst of this political crisis, constitutional crisis, you start to see these proliferation of gangs and you see them growing increasingly powerful. There were several massacres under President Jovenel Moise's watch, um, allegations by human rights group that these gangs, that there was a relationship between the gangs and the government and that some of these gang leaders were on the payroll um, of the government. And then we come to the 7th of July and the president is killed. His uh, murder today is still unresolved. About 44 people have been arrested currently in the Haitian jail. It includes 18 members or former members of the Colombian military. Um, a 19th one was just um, arrested in Jamaica um, this month. But we still don't know, you know, who did it, why they did it. Um, you know, it's a huge mystery. But in that time, uh, the president himself, prior to his death, he had designated um, a new prime minister. He started this process around June, Dr. Ariel Henry. And it was based basically on the international community putting a lot of pressure on President Jovenel Moise and saying, listen, we need you to go to elections. 
we need you to work on getting together some sort of a consensus government, um, a prime minister that is not necessarily from your party, but for out of the opposition to see if we can get out of this, this, this crisis. Well, with his death came a political three-way political struggle between the interim guy, the new guy, and the president of the 10-member Senate today. Um, and today what you have is, you know, um, Ariel Henry is serving as interim prime minister, basically in charge of a government that was appointed by President Jovenel Moise, or at least loyal to him. Um, but you have civil society in Haiti. We're talking about human rights organizations, um, members of the church, um, the Protestant and Catholic church, um, people just, you know, institutions, you know, universities, intellectuals who are basically saying we need a pause. We do not need a rush to election. We want a two-year transition to get our house in order um, in order to prepare this country to, to go to elections. Um, they want to take charge. At the same time, they've been very critical of the role of the United States, uh, the international community, but particularly the United States um, in terms of Haiti and deciding you know, who should run, who should be president, um, whether an election was fraudulent or not. Um, you know, so these are the kind of discussions that you have that are going on. And, and all of this is sort of, you know, coming at a time when this country is in every crisis imaginable. There's a humanitarian crisis um, that existed even before the earthquake affected 800,000 people and left, you know, um, others dead, um, destroyed, you know, towns. Uh, you've got an economic crisis. Uh, the economy itself is just in complete shambles. Uh, today, as I'm talking to you, the streets of Port-au-Prince um, are basically empty. There's not a drop of fuel um, in the pumps at gas stations in the capital and outside of the capital. Hospitals are saying that if they do not get fuel within the next couple of hours, they're going to have to close their doors. And others are saying it's even more extreme than that, that you know, patients will die because hospitals run on generators, which require diesel, and their reserves are running out or on the verge of running out. And Jacqueline, you wrote a great story about that today, actually, and <clears throat> where you shared about the impact of the fuel shortage that's going on here because of fear of the, the gangs that are taking place. And wondering what are some of those other kind of um, secondary or other kind of ripple effects that we're seeing as a result of some of the gang violence? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because this is a country that, you know, um, people, somebody said today on Twitter, like, oh, it's not just, you know, the gangs that are creating this. Now, yes, this is, you know, the government has, you know, chronically, you know, mismanaged the, the energy contracts. We know that. But this gang violence is just now seeping into every facet of life, if you think about it. So you have a situation today where um, even if the ships come in, with the fuel at the port. The gangs have blocked the entry points at the port, which makes it um, difficult, if not near, near impossible, for the fuel truck drivers to get through. Those who have managed to get through um, in the last couple of weeks, they've been victims of kidnapping themselves. They've had their fuel trucks taken, held hostage, and the gangs in turn have sold this fuel on the black market. So while the fuel pumps are empty, people have fuel on the streets and they're selling, you know, at ridiculous um, prices. 
Uh, again, it's a country where the electrical grid is unreliable. So today, Digicel, which is the largest telecom company, they control over 70% of the cell phone market in Haiti. One of their directors of operations said that about 20% of the network of their site is down because of the lack of fuel. So all weekend, people were trying to make phone calls, trying to get in touch with people. They, they couldn't. So imagine being in a, in a an emergency situation. Talk about COVID. Uh, Haiti today, less than 1% of Haiti's 11.5 million people are actually vaccinated um, against COVID. Although the U.S. provided 500,000 doses of vaccines, it came in July um, after the Supreme Court justice had died, the president of the Supreme Court had died from COVID and others also, I mean, it was the last country in the Americas to receive COVID vaccines. And it's they're having a tough time today even convincing people to get vaccinated. But on top of that, um, what we do know, though, is maybe the one saving grace is that the COVID pandemic has not created the kind of large numbers in, in casualties that we've seen elsewhere in Latin America and the Caribbean. But today there are at least 150 patients in, you know, COVID wards in the country who not only need electricity, but they need oxygen. And to get the oxygen, you need the generators to work. So the country was already suffering from a shortage or lack of liquid oxygen for, for patients. One hospital said they need at least four, 240 um, canisters a, a, a day, given their, their, their patient toll. And the country is either in a third or fourth wave, depending on how you count. So all of this is seeping into everyday life. Schools, schools, schools are now, um, they're closed today. And, and some schools have said that they probably will not be able to reopen for the rest of the year. They're going to have to move to online. The problem with that, according to the teachers, is that you can't go online because the network is down mm-hmm. because of the lack of fuel. So, you know, the, the question that most patients are asking, you know, what is working today in the country? Because Everywhere you turn, it's just one crisis after another. Yes, it's really well described. It's I, I think it was in one of your pieces, and we have one of our students now is working in Ethiopia and Tigray, and I know part of what's being argued with the gangs um, controlling so much of this area and the need for gas is that there need to be these humanitarian corridors, um, as happens almost in war-torn countries, uh, to be able to get supplies through uh, in a sort of uh, peaceful way to get needed humanitarian efforts going to the earthquake and to clinics and to hospitals. Um, as you've described all this, uh, Jacqueline, another disappointing part of U.S. policy has been that deportations have been happening along the way. I wanted to touch on this briefly before then asking you some bigger picture questions. But can you talk briefly about what the administration, the U.S. administration has been doing um, with deporting some Haitians and even Haitians who have been in for sometimes for many years in South America and Chile and different places. And they've been being deported back to the, to the, to Haiti from Mexico and from other places. Can you talk briefly about that situation? Yeah. So I was in Del Rio, Texas. Um, and also went to, um, Acuna, Ciudad Acuna in Mexico on the Mexico side. Um, when we saw this migration crisis um, erupt in um, early September. And essentially what you had was about 15,000 migrants, a majority of whom were Haitian. They were basically underneath this international bridge on the U.S. southern border between te- with Texas and, and, and Mexico. 
And the assumption I think some people made in the beginning was a lot of these were people who were basically coming from Haiti, which just a month prior had been struck by this deadly earthquake um, on the Southern Peninsula. And of course, you know, the assassination of the president in July. But uh, as I started talking to people, the few who were lucky enough to get released, even if temporarily, what I came to understand is that these were individuals who basically had been living in Chile and Brazil and basically had taken this very dangerous 7,000 mile trek through the Daring Gap, which is considered one of the world's most dangerous migrant routes um, in order to get to the US-Mexico border. Uh, again, we have to go back a little bit. You know, after the 2010 earthquake, there was a lot of promises made to build Haiti back better. Uh, the international community pledged, you know, over $10 billion in aid. 11 years later, most of that money never arrived. Um, you know, including from the United States as well, which had committed to rebuild the hospital, the largest hospital in the country, the General Hospital. And today that hospital, I can tell you, still has not opened its doors. So there was a lot of disappointment. You know, people, everybody was expecting for there to be a migration crisis right after the quake. There wasn't. People were just waiting to see what was going to happen, even as 1.5 million of them remained homeless because they had lost their homes. And the disaster. And so about two years later, we started to see this trend. First, it was Haitians leaving to go to Brazil, which was preparing for the World Cup and the Olympics needed workers in Brazil actually put in a legal structure so that Haitians can be legal residents and they could address the whole trafficking that was happening between Haiti and Brazil where people were actually dying in the Amazon. But then as Brazil started to undergo its own problems with corruption and the Olympics and the World Cup were over and the economy was not as vibrant, we started seeing a migration movement to Chile because Chile had a very vibrant economy. There were jobs available and basically, uh, you know, Spanish was also much easier for um, a lot of Haitians in Portuguese. But Chile has been difficult. Um, in Chile, they encounter racism. Um, they were working 16 hours a day, six days a week. Uh, they're staying in places the size of closets, um, you know, subject to a lot of abuses. And so we started to see the trend from 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 Chile. And, and let me just as an aside tell you, in 2017, as, as an example, one percent of Haiti's population, which is essentially 100,000 people, had migrated to Chile. Just to tell you the draw of of, of Chile. Um, so we started to see this Latin American migration. They went from Haiti to Brazil, Brazil to Chile, and then they started to make their way up through South and Central America. And a lot of migrants said to me, you know, while some of them are in search of El Dorado and their intention all along was the United States, some of them really wanted to just make a life for themselves in Latin America, whether it be Chile, Brazil, or even Mexico. But when they've arrived in these countries, they have found that the environment has not been welcoming. Um, the economies has, have made it difficult, and COVID has now added even more difficulty um, in that, especially in Chile, if they don't have papers, they weren't able to go out even to the store, much less to go work. And rumors started circulating that the border was open, the U.S. border, which we know it was not. But people decided to take their chances. So they crossed the, um, the Rio Grande. Uh, they were on the other side of this bridge. Um and some people made it through. We still don't know what rhyme or reason 
um, U.S. immigration officials decided who got to stay and who didn't, although I noticed that pregnant women were allowed to remain because of humanitarian concerns. But the majority, you know, of them have been shipped back to Haiti, have been deported back to Haiti. And I think today, according to the International Organization for Migration, you've had over 10,000 people, um, Haitians who have been returned to Haiti, most of them from the United States, from the Del Rio, uh, Mexico border, but also we're seeing um, deportations from Mexico. We're seeing them from the Bahamas as well as the Turks and Caicos. And what you have today is a brewing migration crisis that's happening in Haiti, not just from Haitians who had not been in the country for a decade, who are being shipped back to a country that they no longer recognize, but even from the Southern Peninsula, where I'm being told that traffickers are now sort of feeding on the desperation that's there um, because of the, the, the earthquake, the lack of aid um, that's getting through, the lack of hope. Uh, they're convincing people that, hey, we can get you to the U.S. So people are taking their chances. They're going on boats only to end up, you know, on a reef or in a key in the Bahamas, the southern region of the Bahamas. Some have even ended up in Cuba and they are being returned right back to Haiti. Yes, it's, these compounding problems are are discouraging indeed. Um wanted to just transition now because I'm sure for you as a journalist take working on these kind of stories as we do in our humanitarian work, um, it is uh, important to find ways to balance out life and to be able to keep doing your work and not um, and not totally burn out. And so we have five quick questions that we ask to all of our guests that we'd love to ask for you, ask you now. Um, and again, transitioning out, and then we'll just ask you one final summary question as you set such a, a great context for us of what's happening in Haiti right now, Jacqueline. Uh, so first question is, what is a, is there a good book that you're reading right now? I mean, the book that I'm reading, is all related to Haiti, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, yesterday I was looking for Moon Bath by Yannick Lyons because it was recommended by my former publisher, but I'm also reading um, Haiti's Predatory Republic by Robert Faton. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, that was really helpful for me when I I read that while I was living in Haiti. Um, Very good, good recommendation for people who want to go deeper into Haiti. And is there a book that you've given away maybe more than others or that you find yourself often recommending to others? Yes, I, you know, again, I, I guess I'm saying a lot about myself in my in my reading, but um, Edwidge Danticat's Breath, Eyes, Memory, I think that every, I'm a, I'm a child of an immigrant, I am an immigrant, and I think that whether you are a Haitian immigrant or, you know, Latino or Asian that you can identify with this. And I just remember um, reading this book and, and it's one that I always recommend um, to a lot of youngsters. I live in Miami, which is a very diverse community. So I recommend it to people who want to know more about immigrants, but also to individuals who are from immigrant families themselves who may feel um, that they're alone. And, and it's a beautiful book. Mm, beautiful book. Uh, next question, is there some kind of product you're using right now, like an app, a tool, a trick, a travel product that uh, you are finding especially helpful these days? Wow. Um, I actually, you know, it's interesting again. <laughs> my, old, my, my my iPhone 12, I have to tell you this because when I arrived in Haiti on the 7th of July, my, my iPhone blew up, my iPhone 7. <laughs> And I, and I literally, you know, that's the worst thing that can happen to you as a journalist, yes. right? Where you basically have no phone and 
um, in your WhatsApp and nothing made sense. But because there's been so much interest uh, in Haiti, it's amazing how much use I'm now getting out of this iPhone 12 <laughs> in terms of Skype um, and doing video calls. But I will tell you the AirPods. I, I said recently that this was the best $250 investment that I had made in a very long time. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, along those lines, have you put those AirPods to use in terms of maybe a favorite TV show, movie, or a musical artist that you've been listening to lately? So I have to tell you that, you know, when you're always working on stuff that's heavy, um, you often just want to do stuff that you just did requires no thinking. So um, I binged recently off of um, this crazy Netflix movie, um, and I'm into reality TV. It's I know it's ridiculous, but I, I watch my, you know, 90 days fiancés, my housewives, and married at first sight, because I need things that are just, you know, not so heavy and just, I don't have to think. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally understandable. And this may relate to that. So last question, and what do you do to renew your body and your mind when you do such demanding work? I don't do enough. I, I have to tell you, I um. It's, it's unfortunate that when I just think about the last couple of months, everybody has been pressing me and pressing me and telling me I have to take a vacation. And every time I try, I'm, I've been running from literally crisis to crisis, and I just haven't had a chance to, and I, I need to take one, but I, I, I don't. <laughs> and, it's, and I wouldn't recommend to people, do, please do not do as I do. Um, but it's just, when I just think about the last, you know, I was in Haiti for a month after the assassination, I came back. I went to Trinidad and Barbados on another story because I do cover the rest of the Caribbean. And the day after I came back from Barbados, we had the earthquake. That Sunday, I was back in Haiti for about three weeks, came back, barely back. And then I had to rush to Texas to Del Rio, Mexico. I literally was off when this kidnapping happened. And I had to just cut my vacation short and jump on this kidnapping story. Wow, you're on the go. Well, one last question related to this, Jacqueline. I was talking with a friend in Haiti uh, over the over the weekend and he you know he has a you mentioned the girl is kidnapped you know he has two high school aged children his wife like they're all facing this worry that you've been talking about in this context and he's one of the most hopeful committed people i've ever met anywhere in the world um and so i said what would you ask you know i'm talking about this journalist what would you ask and he said well the uh, the obvious question like we've talked about what got us here but what's the way out like when you think about What's happening here? What gives you the most hope for Haiti to emerge? You know, it's not short term, but to emerge over the years ahead um, from the crisis and continued crisis of the past years and even the past decades. You know, the conversation that I've been having a lot with people these days is that a house divided cannot stand. And that I think somewhere along this experiment called democracy, you know, 30 some odd years after the fall of the dictatorship, Haitians have almost forgotten, have stopped believing in their own power um, to change things around. And it's very easy to feel, you know, helpless. But I think the future in Haiti lies with its people. I think that um, I often say that we're still stuck in January 1802. This is before, you know, the indigenous army and those who were fighting with the French decided to come together and identify a common enemy. And I think that once Haitians decide that common enemy uh, and put their heads together and set aside their differences, that's will be the hope to turn this country around. 
Um, it's not quite there. I think it's getting there, but we still have the disagreements in fighting this sort of pettiness. But today, you know, this gentleman will probably tell you it's very hard to feel ho- hopeful, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and what you see is you have young people today who do have choices, but they want to remain in this country. But it's very difficult when you don't know when you go out of your door if you're going to come back home or not. You know, you asked the question earlier about what I've done to recharge before this crisis. I got on a plane. I went to Haiti, not to work, but I just went on vacation and people found that to be shocking. But, you know, the country is beautiful and the country has so much more to offer than, you know, the various crises. And for me, that was one of the ways for me to renew myself, renew my hopefulness, renew my faith in the country um, and get the energy for me to do what I'm you know, what I continue to do. But in the last two weeks, when I'm looking at this crisis and the surge in kidnapping, I almost feel like a kid on a playground playing double scotch, trying to figure out at what point do you jump in? You know, can you jump in and and, and get out alive? And it's a very difficult and it's a very sad feeling to have. Well, Jacqueline, thank you so much for taking your time with us uh, today. And just thank you for the the really important work that you do day to day and week to week uh, there in covering Haiti as well as other countries. A real honor to get to spend this time with you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. You can find links to the things we mentioned during this episode in the show notes. And special thanks to The Brilliance for this fantastic music theme. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. You can also follow the Humanitarian Disaster Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you next week as we continue learning to do good better.